eating disorders thrive in secrecy and shame. It's when we create a safe space for honest conversation that we'll find the opportunity for healing. Hi there, I'm Dr. Karen Nelson, licensed clinical psychologist at Melrose Center, welcoming you to Melrose Heals, a conversation about eating disorders, a podcast designed to explore, discuss, and understand eating disorders and mental health. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend and former colleague, Megan Tarman. Megan is a licensed marriage and family therapist. We used to work together at Melrose, and now she is currently working with students at Carleton College. For many students, college is an exciting and confusing time. They are thrust into new experiences, responsibilities, and expectations. We hope this episode will be helpful for both college students, their friends, and their families. Now, before I begin, I invite you to take a deep breath and join me in this space. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes. Hi, my name is Megan Tarman. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I currently work at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, and I had previously worked at Melrose for about five and a half years before that. So let's talk a little bit about specifically eating disorders on college campuses. Can you get an eating disorder in college? Yes. So I would say between the ages of 18 and 21 are those traditional ages to go to college. And that is that is the prime time when we really see eating disorders either develop or reemerge. That's when we can see relapse happening too. Tell me a little bit about what might contribute to developing an eating disorder in college. Yeah, I think um, like kind of generally speaking, it's a really stressful and vulnerable transition in life. And I think kind of more specifically, some contributing factors can be if there's a history of dieting, if there's a history of an eating disorder, particular groups are more um, at risk of developing eating disorders. So like trans students are four times more likely to develop an eating disorder than their gender counterparts, athletes, especially those individual sports like cross country or wrestling. Um, they're at greater risk as well. And then there's just like, you know, how much support do students have or not have um, can be a huge contributing factor as well. It can be kind of a, some people have described it as kind of a perfect storm at times, right? We're away from home. We have a lot of pressure on us, maybe academic pressure. Mm -hmm. We might have pre-existing mental health stuff. Right. And then I'm alone trying to figure out how to feed myself. I mean, does that make sense? Or what do you think? I mean, do you think those factors do come together? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's definitely like a biopsychosocial. So there's like course, there's the genetic vulnerabilities. Is there a family history of eating disorder? Temperament can be a big piece of it too. You know, high, high achievers, perfectionism, that kind of thing. Um, and then I, I come from a structural lens. So I often think about the systems that surround people. And that might mean, you know, what's your family's relationship to food and body? What's society's relationship, sure. what does society say about your body, for Absolutely. example, um, and the medical community, what sort of experiences have you had in that system? So it's a time where you want to be accepted, 
um, into your community. That's huge for thriving and um, the way we look or the pressures on how we're supposed to look um, is a huge piece of that too. And um, social media is just, I mean, it's a part of our life and especially that age group. For sure. For sure. I mean, we get so many images, right? Yeah. And, and all that like goes into our subconscious. Part of like when I work with students, part of our work is to um, sometimes like go through social media and like, can we delete some of these accounts and can we actually actively search out accounts that are more recovery oriented? And that can be a pretty helpful and important intervention in a way for them to work on the recovery outside of session that doesn't feel so, um, you know, coming from this therapist who, you know, is older. Right. right. Um, so that's often an intervention we'll do at some point. For sure. Um, in our sessions is talk about social media. You how can we make it into a helpful and not a harmful thing? Well, I think, too, I mean, college in that kind of 18 to, you know, 22 age, it's a really critical developmental stage. We're really working to develop and create our identity. So no wonder I want input, right, from maybe social media or my friends or family. So I could potentially be pretty susceptible, like you're saying, to some of these images. Right. The brain's still developing during that time well into our 20s. And our identity development is like really taking off at that age. And um, it's such a, like, like I was saying earlier, such a vulnerable and exciting time to figure out, like, who am I? What's important to me? Um, and, you know, the the eating disorder can certainly hijack that. Well, I, I was talking with a, a client recently. We were talking about our inherent need to belong. And it can feel maybe heightened when I'm in college, right? Like you were saying, kind of identity development. Who am I? Where do right. I fit? And looking for feedback on that. And right. the eating disorder, like you said, can kind of weasel in there and give us some messages about how I might look or how I should look. Right. Well, and I think there's that like difference. I know you, you know, this will resonate with you because I think it comes from Brené Brown, but just that like difference between fitting in and belonging and, um, you know, the eating disorder more aligns with like fitting in. Like, what do I need to do to, uh, you know... Uh, have some sort of like superficial worthiness. That's right. Um, so that's right. Yeah, I think when people have those vulnerability factors, especially when they're like more isolated, the eating disorder can give some sort of level of comfort. Well, Brene Brown, she does not know this, but she is my best friend. Uh, and so anytime someone mentions her. I mean, I, right? I knew you would like that one. I know. You, you really do know me. I, I absolutely It, really, it really goes along, though, with like that age when they're like trying to um, find their place, you know, getting away from their community at home. A lot of them, too, might be really far from home. That's right. So really not know anybody. And, That's right. Um, and not even know who they are. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think also even just kind of encompassing, you know, sometimes that urge to control shows up in, um, you know, over-controlling food. But also an eating disorder can express itself in a different way. You know, some right. of, some students may come to us and say, I'm feeling so overwhelmed. I'm binging on food. Mm -hmm. I, you know, feel out of control with food. I feel like I'm I'm so overwhelmed that I can't stop eating. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate or do do students share those ideas with you? Yeah, I think that you know, I think there's still often that 
attempt or that desire for control and the expression is often it feels really out of control and we see a lot of the all or nothing approach to food which I'm sure you see all the time it shows up in students as well where I study I go to all these classes all day I might be working a job and I'm restricting all day and then sure enough eating feels out of control later at night when I'm going out with my friends and we might stop somewhere to get food. And this is where a lot of the education is helpful in our sessions with like, well, your body's actually just trying to take care of you because it thinks it's in a famine. And um, of course, you're going to binge after restricting all day. It's just your body being resilient, but it can come with so much shame where they Good think point. like, oh, I, I just need more willpower. Like, No, it's just not. That's right. That's right. right. Well, I think that all or none thinking can really trap a lot of students, right? And all or none meaning, you know, I'm following these rules perfectly around food or I, I'm not going to follow any of them. Right. So some of that rigid thinking around right. food of like, you know, I'll only eat this particular type of food and I have if I have one bite of Kit Kat, well, the whole day is blown and I I could be susceptible to binging. Right. I think in like inadvertently, I think sometimes the education system reinforces some of this binary thinking around success, all or nothing or success or failure. And that can show up in my relationship with food either has to be like, quote, perfect, whatever that even means, or healthy, whatever that even means. And then if I'm not that way, then something's wrong, then I'm failing. And I think really high achieving students, um, I mean, not even really high achieving students, I think students in general with eating disorders uh, can feel that like um, sort of parallel process in their, you bet, um, you know, as they're striving, you know, to get good grades and absolutely uh, can kind of show up with relationship to food as well. I love that point of that that binary thinking that you mentioned, kind of that all or none, right? Either in that space of almost perfectionism, I think is what's coming up for me, right? Either I'm perfect, mm-hmm. I do it all beautifully, I only get A's, I, you know, I only eat carrots or whatever it might be, right? And if I do one thing, quote, wrong, it's all blown. Right. And it, it, it can feel so, I think maybe I already said this, but like it can feel like countercultural, you know, when people start to work on the recovery, it can start to feel like, okay, Megan, you're telling, you're, you're telling me to challenge the eating disorder and to, um, you know, work on, let's say intuitive eating, if that's where they're at in the recovery, for example, um, or you're telling me to eat this many times a day. But everything around me is re- actually reinforcing my eating disorder and fueling that, like all the systems around them, in- including, again, like medical, um, yeah. you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, the medical systems and uh, families and just diet culture in general is like um, telling the eating disorder, like, yep, that's the route to go. So it can feel like just kind of overwhelming to um, – to start working on recovery For sure. uh, during the college years because there's so much that they're already navigating. So. Absolutely. Is binge eating disorder on campus uh, as far as like an eating disorder diagnosis? Or would you say it is more kind of anorexia, bulimia? Tell me about that. Yeah, I actually recently just stumbled across some research and I can't remember where I read it, but the median age of onset for eating, for um, bulimia and anorexia is 18 
and the median age for binge eating disorder is 21. So it does show up. It sounds like it shows up later in the college experience. And I'm not sure, you know, I'd be curious why that is, but um, it, it is. It just it sounds like it shows up a little bit later. What I'm hearing is that eating disorders definitely do show up on campuses. And what we know, and we were sharing about, you know, the most recent data that we were looking at is the incidence of eating disorders on campus is higher than in the general population. So there's more people, right, this kind of, you know, smaller community on campus, there are more people there that are going to have an eating disorder than in the general population. Yeah, I was, you know, I know I, I was reading some research and on the NIDA website, so the National Eating Disorder Association website, I think it was like from 2013, between 10 and 20 percent of females on college campuses develop an eating disorder, have an eating disorder. Four to 10 percent of males have an eating disorder. And then it said that four out of 10 students either have an eating disorder or know someone who has an eating disorder. So it's it's very, very prevalent. Absolutely. For sure. And so having some ability to have some conversation about it because it oftentimes I think talking about not only eating disorders but just mental health can feel scary and uh, we can feel almost like um unprepared right right I think thankfully it in this just anecdotally it feels like there's so much less stigma now than maybe you know 10 years ago um students from what I've seen, are very okay with seeking out mental health services and, um, you know, even joking sometimes with their friends, like, my therapist said this, and it, it's so much more normalized. Not that there's not stigma and shame, but it does feel like it's getting better. Talking about some of the prevalence of eating disorders, we know men absolutely struggle with eating disorders. What might be some contributing factors for men? you know, body image ideal. So again, coming from that systems lens, how does society view male bodies and what's valued, what's worthy? Um, I think toxic masculinity is also a piece of this. You know, we see more around, um, you know, muscle, mass, protein intake, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, what it means to be a man. I, I do think there's a lot of stigma and shame for males uh, reaching out for care, um, not only in eating disorders, but mental health in general. And again, as a, um, you know, so we know that there's a higher prevalence in college to potentially struggle with an eating disorder. Of those college students, the risk to develop an eating disorder if you are a college athlete is also increased. Yes. So for athletes, there's that greater risk of developing or, again, that reemerging of an eating disorder, especially for the individual sports like cross-country, wrestling, um, And again, trans students, too, are at greater risk of developing eating disorder. So it definitely shows up in all genders in all ways. But there are those groups who are facing, you know, maybe oppression, stigma, um, just more stressors. Absolutely. um, On top of an already stressful time. Absolutely. And again, I think about, you know, that piece of, you know, athletics, you know, someone, you know, potentially working to 
achieve a particular type of body or gain strength or whatever it might be. It it sometimes sounds like it can kind of, um, I don't know, diverge into more kind of destructive eating or, or disordered eating. Yeah, depending on this is where I think it can be really helpful for the the coaches and even their relationship to food and body, because sometimes those messages can trickle from the top down um, and we can see you know, this like um, these norms that show up in their mealtimes together where everyone's eating a lot of safe, you know, quote, healthy foods. Right. Um, and so some of those things can show up on teams that really fuel the eating disorder or there's a lot of myths too, like, oh, if I'm this size, I'll be more, I'll be faster or my performance will be better if or if I eat in this way and they're all myths um, that's right. but that can certainly fuel disordered eating. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, well, I love it how you talk about looking for the function of the behavior. I think sometimes that dissipates some of the shame that might be attached of like, you know, our, our brain is really smart and it wants to help us figure out a solution. Sometimes the solution ends up being problematic, though. And what I hear you saying is, let's look at the function of that, right? You know, if, if I have to write this 30-page paper, but, you know, my focus is on finishing this bag of Cheetos, I don't have to write the 30-page paper. And now, uh-oh, I still got to write the 30-page paper, and now I feel real bad that I ate the Cheetos. That can show up, I think, for students. Yeah, I, I'm very intentional when we have those conversations in the therapeutic process, but I think it's a vital conversation to have. To, and I often will say we do need to honor the fact that certain things show up in our life for a reason, and eating disorder is no different. We're just trying to do the best we can and survive this thing called life. We are not taught how to do a lot of life, and in fact, we're we're sent a lot of messages that actually do reinforce the eating disorder. So I think that can help release some of the shame and the person can feel like, okay, I I am just trying to do the best I can. And this does serve many different functions for me. And how do I do this in a new and different way? Because this is definitely not working for me. That's right. Well, you bring up the point that binge eating often happens in secret. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, would a roommate maybe miss the signs or what might be the signs if, if we think someone might be struggling with that? Is, is there anything specific we should look for or what do you think about that? I think with binge eating disorder, there can be similarities with other eating disorders where there might be um you know, all or nothing approach to food. Um, we can see, you know, with the roommate situation, there might be food that disappears. That's right. Um, that was there. Um, but when they're with the person, they might appear to be eating quite normally. Um, because again, when the symptoms are occurring, if it's, you know, um, binging, for example, um, but this can be all symptoms, it's often happening behind the scenes. Um, when they're alone. Um, but that can be a big sign like, hey, there's a lot of food that tends to be missing or I'm noticing wrappers, for example, um, kind of in different places, sometimes hidden places. What should a student do if they suspect another student might be struggling with an eating disorder? I think there's several different ways 
fellow students can approach someone they're concerned about. Um, some students will just approach their friend and say, hey, I'm noticing, um, you know, you always go into the bathroom right after we eat or um, whenever we go out to eat, you don't come with. Um, so those direct conversations are happening. But I also think um, sometimes if they're not comfortable with that, they might send a message to the counseling center and seek guidance or they might go to their dean, which is a really helpful resource on campus. And then the dean can approach the person who's struggling and go from there. So nice. it can it can kind of take off in different ways. What are some signs that they can look out for? The the friend, yes. for example. So it might be again if if they're going out to eat and their friend typically tends to avoid that or maybe they start to notice behaviors when they are eating with them like oh you're eating the same thing all the time or maybe you're talking about your your food or our food or um, or your body a lot mm-hmm. um, or um, again going to the bathroom right after the meal a lot of the times or there's just like this hyper focus for you on food and body in general um, that can definitely raise red flags for friends. What is treatment like for a student on campus? Yeah, that really depends. So treatment can be kind of clunky at times um, for various reasons. If the college campus is in, let's say it's a liberal arts college in a rural area, there can be, you know, transportation barriers, there can be insurance barriers, not all the time, but sometimes. So again, the ideal situation is that the college counseling center would have some kind of specialist. The ideal would be if there's a therapist who specializes in eating disorders, there's medical staff who are trained in knowing how to identify eating disorders. If there's a dietitian, that would be great. But Oftentimes, the student is needing specialized care, then we refer to the appropriate place like Melrose or um, place like other places in um, within the area. Do most college campuses offer eating disorder treatment? Um, I don't know the statistics on that, honestly, um, but I know that it's often valued and sought after to have somebody on the team who knows something about eating disorders. Sometimes this doesn't happen all the times, but sometimes it can be really helpful if a student can take a medical leave of absence and really focus on themselves and their well-being. Um, sometimes that just doesn't happen in the treatment. If it's if it's needing that higher level of care, will happen over breaks, so like sure. summer breaks, winter break, things like that. If you're a parent or a guardian, and your student comes home from a break, and you suspect that maybe they're struggling with an eating disorder, or maybe they have been diagnosed with an eating disorder while on campus, how might you support them? I see parents often learning about eating disorder when the student comes home for break, for sure. They notice changes in many different ways, and how parents have approached that is Ideally, having a conversation with their child and coming up with a plan, but that often entails reaching out to the college. And it sometimes it starts with the dean. The dean is just a highly utilized resource, and they then can start that coordination and connection with the student to the counseling center. And of course, um, you know, we need the releases of information because 
we're a confidential service, um, but parents will often reach out to their dean or the college and get the ball rolling. What signs might parents look for? Changes in weight is one. Uh, more isolation, hyper-focus on food and body, body-checking behaviors, behaviors surrounding food like dieting, avoiding foods, um, just being really preoccupied with food and body, um, not themselves. We hear parents often say, you know, I miss my daughter, I miss my son. Um, and and that's when we start to see when the healing process happens. We often will hear the opposite. Oh, I, I have my child back. Um, their personality is shining again. What might a parent say? So, if, you know, if the parent is, you know, hanging out, it's almost Thanksgiving break. The parent is, you know, sitting on the couch with their son or daughter. What might be some examples of, of how they could bring it up or what what could they say? Oh, this is so hard because I know parents don't want to, you know, don't want to do harm. But again, I think parents often fear that and and then that can kind of hold them back from expressing their concern. Um, But the reality is that once it's addressed, oftentimes it it is so relieving for the, the child, the student. Um, it can be, you know, I think being non-judgmental is obviously really helpful, giving unconditional, you know, um, positive love. It might sound something like, I'm really concerned about you. Here's what I'm noticing. Um, let's come up with a plan. I'm here for you. Um, I love that. Yeah. Just having the conversation, right? Because oftentimes in that space of fear, we might want to avoid it. Yes. We Sometimes we think like, think that like no this is going to make it worse and it it's not the reality it's it's a scary conversation to have but there's so much relief after it takes place and we know that eating disorders are the second deadliest mental health disorder out there so they need to they need to be addressed That's um, right. sooner than later too because we That's also right. know that the sooner that they are um dealt with the the better the recovery long term absolutely absolutely and that there is care available and absolutely it's one of the things we believe here at melrose and talk all the time about recovery is possible we watch people recover and it we it's far more challenging to recover from an eating disorder if you don't access care oh my gosh recovery and isolation i i I, really really challenging so having that community is vital how do you encourage students in their recovery? Um, I do really go along the stages of change. So depending on where they're at in their motivation to make changes, I try to meet them where they're at. If they're in a place where they are incredibly ambivalent about change, I'm not going to get the hammer on them. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Let's start, like, let's do, let's do this. Um, so I try to meet them where they're at. I'm really transparent and I give them the facts. So I say things like eating disorders are the second deadliest mental health disorder out there. Um, the earlier we address this, the better long term. Um, community support is incredibly helpful. Having a full team is really, so I give them all the facts, but I also try to meet them where they're at and like, what changes can we make today? What are you ready to do? So it's like this delicate balance of like challenging them, pushing them to the edge of their discomfort, but like not necessarily pushing them over the edge. Unless, of course, I mean, there's 
obviously times if it's safety, like, yep, we have to intervene. Absolutely. And, um, use some leverage here. Right. Right. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to say? Um, oh, gosh. Probably. Um, <laughs> so many things to say. Um, when I think about it, I just think, I don't know, I just think college time is just such a wonderful, exciting identity development stage in life. It's so fun and exciting and it's so flipping hard too. And so um, I guess I just, I would say, um, you know, just that like, uh, it's okay to get help and you don't have to like be ready. That's I, right. I don't know. I guess that would be really important because I think sometimes fe people feel like they have to be like, you don't have to be ready. Show up. We'll meet you where you're at. What is the biggest thing you'd like people to take away from listening to this episode today? Just that there's, there's no shame in it. I think, you know, we've talked about, we're just trying to do the best we can. That's also, right. we're still going through a pandemic. And I and I think right. we're so like numb to it now. Like, oh, it's no big, like, no, we're going through a pandemic and college is hard. And so stuff shows up. That's right. Um, and, and there's no shame in it. We're just trying to get through it. And we've all got our stuff. So That's right. get help. That's right. Well, Megan, I cannot even begin to tell you how fun it was to chat with you today. Thank you oh, so much. It was for a pleasure. Me. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for joining me. We've covered a lot, so I encourage you to let it settle and filter in. And as I tell my patients at the end of every session, take notice, pay attention, and we'll take it as it comes. I'll talk to you next time. Melrose Heals, a conversation about eating disorders, was made possible by generous donations to the Park Nicolette Foundation.